Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. It has indeed been a long week. We left up some of the decorations. We took down the ones that would be safety hazards. <laughs> uh, we had uh, flags all through here so we could get the camera angle. We took those down as well, but uh, you could see a part of what it takes to put on just the decoration portion of VBS, and we are so thankful uh, for a good week. We had good, solid numbers all week, and thankful for that. The clarity of the gospel, I would say, in every element, from lessons to even the game time, to snacks and crafts, as well as the science that we did this week, the clarity of the gospel was there in every place. And such a blessing it is to walk in, as pastor, to walk in and hearing uh, one of you proclaiming the gospel boldly, whether it was in this room where the teaching was occurring, or whether it was downstairs with many of the other programs or outside listening to it on the songs that were being played during the game time as well. So we praise the Lord for the opportunity to present the gospel. And we continue to be in prayer for a harvest of souls to be yielded through Vacation Bible School this week. And we had the picnic, as Scott mentioned earlier. The picnic was a great opportunity. Many families out, many of you intermingling with them, welcoming them getting to know them as well. So thank you for your participation in that. Uh, this morning we do turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. As we do so, we uh, are mindful, and it is certainly a part of our course of life. We're mindful for the reason that Paul was writing 1 Thessalonians, and it mirrors ours this morning. It mirrors ours, because this morning we are grieving the loss of uh, our earthly loss of Frenchie, uh, but we are thrilled for her eternal gain. And so there is a bittersweet, as Scott called it a moment ago, there's this bittersweet feeling and wrestling that we endure this morning, and it does cause us to understand with uh, rawness the reason for First Thessalonians. The reason for First Thessalonians is you have a vibrant church, a church that's growing, a church that's active, it's robust in every way, it has very immature people who are part of it. These are people who've only known Christ for a matter of weeks. And Paul is writing to them because they begin to notice that even though they are just now coming to Christ, that some of their number are going home to be with the Lord. And as that number increases, they question, when is Christ coming? We thought Christ would come now. And Paul is writing to communicate to them that indeed Christ is coming. And he gives to them the reminder of how to live day to day in light of those eternal truths. But that is all part of the letter we're going to get into. And this morning, we're going to start with now the official introduction to the letter. The official introduction is grace and peace in verses 1 and 2. And Paul says this in the text, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The way that you say hello matters a lot. Have you ever noticed that? If not, pick up the phone when you know that a telemarketer is calling you. Have you ever done that? And you're like, uh, I look at my phone and it says, and my, my most prolific caller. If you look at my phone and you see the phone logs of who's the one who calls me, there's my favorite caller is spam likely or scam likely rather. 
You're like, yeah, uh, scam likely again. He's calling me. He's called me three times today. And uh, yep, sure enough, I'm not answering that one either. <laughs> when we look at our phone and we, we click on it to say hello, it matters what you hear on the other side in the greeting, does it not? And if you hear, hi, my name is so-and-so from such-and-such company, you're like, click. <laughs> That's all you get. You got five seconds of my time, and I wish I had not have spent that much. There's others who say, hello, this is, and it's a family member, and you're instantly connected. Or someone who calls with great news, and you can hear the inflection in their voice as they call and say, hi, this is so-and-so, and I want you to know. Or someone who calls with bad news, and you can hear that inflection in their tonal as well. That's where we're at when Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to get into it, and as we do so, we recognize how much is communicated in the first two verses of this book. Oftentimes, we skip over it. It is similar to other greetings, but there are some specific nuances and differences that reveal to us a special relationship to the Thessalonian believers and something about the church as well. And so we want to spend some time here this morning in these first two verses. In order to do that, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before You, knowing that as the Thessalonians wrestled with the delay or the perceived delay in the coming of Christ, we too wrestle. This morning we grieve the loss of one of our own, a, a shocking and yet not shocking passing away of one of your saints. We know that Frenchie longed to go home to be with you, and we are thankful and grateful for her testimony and resilience and warm embrace as we have heard already this morning. Lord, we also recognize that there's a task to do and work that is ours to accomplish, and so while we are here, while Christ tarries, we continue in that endeavor, and that was seen throughout the week of VBS. So these two things collide for us. We want to be a vibrant church. We want to be those who are faithful in proclaiming with accuracy and simplicity the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also want to be those who long to spend eternity with you and are anxiously anticipating the coming of Christ. Lord, we know that these are not theory doctrines, that they are not something that theologians are to discuss around the table coming up with uh, some sort of supposed end time. But instead, these are truths to be lived out. And they must affect our day-to-day -day life. And I praise you that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians for that very purpose. That they would live out these great theological truths that are not theory, but to be practiced. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for our time together in your word today. We ask that you'd give me the words to speak, that they would be from you. We praise you for the evidence of EBS that is all around us, but we do pray that it would not be a distraction for us this morning, but instead would be that which helps us to dig deeply, invest more, and to glorify you in the opportunities that have been presented and will be presented in the coming days. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we can spend together this morning. We ask that your name would be glorified in all of it. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
as we begin in 1 Thessalonians 1, we see Paul's ministry is often one-on-one. And that's how he starts. It's fascinating to me because today we write letters, or, well, we sometimes write letters. We write emails mainly now. Uh, But at the end of the email, what do you find? You have written the whole email and you find your name, some sort of greeting and your name. Isn't that awkward? Have you ever noticed how awkward that is? You get an email, you're not quite sure the where the email came from, what's your first thing that you do? At least for me, I scroll to the end of the letter to see who wrote me. I want to know, should I read the letter or should I just read the end? Should I pay attention to everything that is in between or should I just say, nope, saw it that I had an email, I don't have time, Uh, this is not something that's important, it's not pressing, and I set it aside. We, in our letter writing today, start with the recipient's name. But that was not common in Paul's day. What was common in Paul's day, and probably a better practice, actually, although it would seem awkward if you were to try to change culture on your own, um, but a better practice would be to say who's writing it first. And that's what Paul does. So we see Paul in a one-on-one ministry as he enters into Thessalonian, or into Thessalonica, as we saw in Acts chapter 17. He's entered with a team, which we're going to see, but notice how Paul starts. It is fascinating to me, and it is unique to the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, which have almost identical greetings. It is fascinating to me that Paul just starts out simply Paul. If you scan the rest of Paul's letters, the only one that perhaps could be written in a different way, or in a similar way rather, as the book of 1 Thessalonians, is Galatians. And it even has some differences in its nuance. The first word in the first letter to the Thessalonians is Paul. Not Paul, a doulos, like we saw in Philippians. That is an important distinguishing mark, but it is a unique distinguishing mark. And here, there is a unique distinguishing mark as well. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy. There's no explanation. There's no ego at all. I remind you that 1 Thessalonians is one of, if not the, first book that Paul wrote. Paul has been to Thessalonica. He's now in Corinth. It's AD 50, AD 51 in that era. And Paul is penning a letter just weeks after having been in Thessalonica. This is his first contribution to the canon of Scripture. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, written down as the Spirit of God would move him, but this is the first one that is included in the canon of Scripture. And Paul begins not with Paul, an apostle, not with Paul, a doulos, a slave, a servant, In 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul starts simply as Paul. Paul. He doesn't enhance his name. He doesn't try to aggrandize his stature. And can you imagine, this is early on in Paul's ministry, in the sense of those letters, the outflow of letters that are going to come after this, If there was ever a letter where Paul could have sought ego, it was here. It would have been this one. An apostle of Jesus Christ, I, Paul, write to you. That's not what he does. He doesn't say, Paul, who's been among you, 
who served with you, look at me, I'm still serving in Corinth. He does not say that. He says, Paul. Paul is writing with pastoral intent to a church that is young in the faith. Just a few months or even just a few weeks old. D.L. Moody remarked this. He says, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. True service begins where gratitude and applause ends. Paul intentionally removes the opportunity for applause. He intentionally removes the opportunity for gratitude expressed towards him, and he pushes it and declares it to the things of the Lord. And so this morning as we gather around and we see what Paul is doing, there is a habit that you and I should pick up. Paul is humble even when he could have been more enhanced than he was, more ego than he has. Paul could have legitimately and biblically said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he does that in most of the other letters. But here, to this church, he has taken off the apostle hat while still remaining an apostle. And he's put on his pastoral care for a church that's grieving, a church that's vibrant and robust, and a push towards that continued vibrancy and standing firm in the faith. This is a crisis point for the church. And Paul takes off all of the vestiges of entitle or titles that he may possess. And he says, I'm Paul writing to you, Thessalonians. We see also that Paul doesn't just include himself, but he includes his team. He includes his team. This is another mark of humility. Paul has done this. We saw this already in Philippians where he said, I, Paul, and Timothy, the due losses of the Lord, the servants of the Lord, the slaves to the Lord. So Paul is quick to bring others, and this is a significant truth that you and I must also glean. We're going to look here at what Paul does in team ministry, but then we're going to understand how it affects you, and it affects every single one of us in this room. Every single one of us have an application here to draw out of Paul's addition of two names, Sylvanius or Silas and Timothy. This is team ministry. Paul's name is not listed alone. He includes it with the two who had been faithful servants with him. According to chapter 3, verse 6, here in 1 Thessalonians, turn over there and we'll see Paul receiving the report. And notice who delivers the report to him. Verse 6 of chapter 3 says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us as long as we long to see you. And Paul goes on and he gives the reason. The reason for the book is this. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What I draw out of that is in verse 6, we'll study this when we get there to chapter 3, but in verse 6, Paul is commending the faith and love of the Thessalonian believers as has been reported by Timothy. So Timothy has been with the Thessalonians longer than Paul and Silas were. Paul and Silas, remember, have been removed and they're going to head off to Berea as we studied in Acts chapter 17 last week. As they're headed off to there, Paul leaves Timothy behind. 
and Timothy is cutting his teeth in ministry. Silas was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, verse 22, we recognize that not only was he a leader in the church, he was a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem. He is a mature believer. He is a faithful follower of the Lord. And his maturity has been the steadfast rock of ministry. Don't we need those kinds of people? We need those who are steadfast, sure, diligent followers of the Lord, whose maturity we want to emulate as they follow Christ. We need those examples. Silas is that. Timothy would become, or would be, eventually, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But that would take some years to develop. He was also the one that was sent to Thessalonica, as we just talked about, and he was there to establish and continue the establishment of the gospel in Thessalonica and the church. Timothy was still cutting his teeth on ministry. He was brand new to this. He was the young and enthusiastic one. I tell you what, each year that I do vacation Bible school, I realize that I'm no longer the young, enthusiastic one. <laughs> About Wednesday this week, I went home and thought, what in the world am I doing? Why am I so tired? We know that there's a transition that takes place, and Silas is the mature, faithful one, and Timothy is the one with all the ambition, all of the excitement, all of the drive, but he has not the experience. But it is fascinating to me that Paul combines them both on his team. Have you considered the necessity of combining both onto the team of leadership? There's both that are necessary. When we evaluate leaders in the church, let us be looking for those like Paul. Not because of his apostleship, but because of his practice. From Paul's perspective, he is enormously grateful to the Lord and to the colleagues because of them. Because of them. He welcomed the young, enthusiastic, and probably oftentimes a little bit in trouble, Timothy. He welcomed the wise, cautious leadership of Silas. And he brought them together in a team. And he praises God. He's enormously grateful to the Lord for his colleagues. He values them for who they are. And at the same time, he treasures their warm, genial fellowship with him. He recognizes their superb contribution to the overall ministry, and it is big enough in heart to acknowledge that he is not alone in it. Paul does not feel threatened by their gifts. Have you ever been around a leader who's threatened by the gifts of those under him or her? There's always animosity, there's always challenges. For Paul, this is not a one man show. He didn't look at Silas and say, I'm going to put you on the shelf a little bit because you're mature, and I'm afraid that others might see your maturity and think you're more mature than me. He didn't look at Timothy and say, I, I appreciate your zeal and enthusiasm, but I'm going to put you on the shelf because I'm getting old and tired, and the last shipwreck and the last stonings, they're, they're wearing on me a little bit. So Timothy, I want you just to tone it down. We don't see Paul do that at all. We don't see Paul uh, even indicate that in his opening the letter 
Paul could have said, Paul, to the church of the Thessalonians. But instead, Paul equates the other two team members as equal to himself. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He is, and then this is important when we understand church ministry today because this is so confused. It is so difficult in church ministry. He is not into empire building. Paul doesn't want the church of Paul. Paul doesn't want the church that looks to Paul. All that matters to Paul is that the gospel is advanced. He is not convinced of his personal indispensability. If you believe that you're indispensable, you're not doing discipleship right. You must be one who can be replaced. There's somebody else coming onto the scene. I've had uh, church boards and church leaders who have felt, you know, I'm the only one that can do this. And it is true, you are uniquely gifted for a task that is within the church, but let us be training the next generation and let us not be offended or put out or putting them out because of our own egos. Let us be faithful disciples, And that is the lesson that we draw from Paul. Whether it is a mature believer, we should go find for us a mature believer who is faithful in sharpening our sword with us. And let us find an immature believer, one who is coming in, cutting his teeth, who may well pass us in our accomplishments, in our, in our popularity. Let us find them and encourage their enthusiasm and temper it only so that they are correct in following the things of the Lord. Let them run in ministry, and you may not do ministry the same way that they do it. Can you imagine Paul sending Timothy to Ephesus? Ephesus is an important place for Paul. Paul would spend two years at the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus, one of the longest stays of any ministry. And Paul would send Timothy there to be the pastor. Can you imagine the emails Paul received from the congregants in Ephesus who said, you know what, we're not quite sure about this young guy you sent to us. He's not quite like you, Paul. He, he's, he's got too much energy. That scares me. <laughs> you know, he's, he's doing this. He's leading this kind of music or he's, he's preaching out of, out of this book in the Old Testament. Paul, do you really know who you sent to us? We don't see Paul stifling in any way the enthusiasm of young Timothy. Nor does he shelf the maturity of Silas. He calls them co-workers, co-laborers, equal to Paul. He knows he is just one among others who make up a team and who need one another's support and input. Beloved, there is no such thing as a one-man or one-woman show in the body of Christ. We must be those who are constantly looking to those who are more mature than us and reaping the years of wisdom, the years of understanding, and the time spent with the Lord. We become beneficiaries of that when we will open ourselves up to that kind of relationship. And then we turn it the other way and we find the ones who are less mature than us. And we teach and we instruct 
but we don't stifle. We don't become intimidated by their giftedness. We, we seek to excel their giftedness. One of my great desires, and this is as a parent, but it is following the same pattern of discipleship, one of my great desires is that every one of my kids far exceeds me in following Christ. Is that your heart in discipleship? That every disciple that you disciple far exceeds you in Christian growth? May that be. It was for Paul. And we see it in the way that he brings young Timothy. He brings him in and he says uh, to the church of Thessalonica, by the way, Timothy, yeah, I picked him up on uh, this journey here. I, I met him in my first journey. I just picked him up a few weeks ago and I'm going to leave him with you. I'm going to let his enthusiasm work in Thessalonica. And I'm going to use him later. I'm going to disciple and train and equip and, and prepare his heart. Can you imagine the lessons that Timothy learned? And Paul doesn't say, yeah, and Timothy came to me, and he's my subordinate, so I expected a report. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy. Co-laborers working together for the church at Thessalonica. We have a lot to learn of discipleship in just those three words. We haven't even gotten into the text yet, but three words deep. And we have a lot to learn about Paul's ministry in that way. But we're going to move on because we need to. <laughs> Let's move into the next portion of verse 1 as we see Paul now address the church. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It is fascinating to me that Paul addresses this church as being in both worlds. They're in two places at one time. And so Paul is saying that they're the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Paul's greeting to the church tells us not only something about his team ministry and about Paul himself and the example that we are to emulate as he followed Christ, but now Paul is also telling us something about the church. There is a double address to the church. If you were to write to the Thessalonians, you may be confused as to where to actually send the letter the way that Paul writes this. We understand there's two different realms that Paul is speaking about, but one is geographically located, and the other one, the other address, tells us where the church is located spiritually. The church is located in Thessalonica to the Thessalonians, but they are found in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, and this is critically important for anyone who thinks that you have a better idea for the church than God does. The church is God's. No one else's. It's His. You all belong to His family. You don't have the right to determine the course on your own free will. You have the responsibility to follow God's direction. We don't have the right to say, you know what? Uh, this is kind of getting, it's kind of getting less than accommodating to the secular world. We're supposed to be less than accommodating to the secular world. We're supposed to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is offensive to those who do not know Christ as Savior. Paul tells us exactly those truths of the church in Thessalonica, and remember from our study last week, this is a church that has a very strong pagan sense around it. 
Why? Because they're in the shadows of Mount Olympus. Literally, you step outside of the synagogue, you step outside of the grocer, you step outside of anywhere in Thessalonica, and you turn off to the west, and you know it's west because there is Mount Olympus. You don't ever get confused about your directions. Because you look to the west, and there it is. Snow-capped Mount Olympus, rising out of the Mediterranean. Paul speaks that this church is active in Thessalonica. The church is vibrant and growing congregation. He's going to spend considerable time over the next chapter and a half telling us of the vibrancy and the growing robustness of this congregation. He's also going to tell us that they faced adversity and reminded them to look forward to the coming of Christ. Not one time, but every chapter Paul reminds them to be looking forward to the second coming of Christ. This book is unique in that Paul is writing to them as they're facing adversity, press on and anticipate the second coming of the Messiah. Anticipate meeting Him in the clouds that the church would be complete and we would meet our bridegroom there. But the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So be robust, be vibrant, be evangelistic, be disciple-makers, and recognize that the church is located spiritually in the Father and the Son. This is truly a unique greeting. In fact, as I said before, this greeting, and especially in this portion right here, this is the only one of Paul's letters Galatians is similar, but this is the only one of Paul's letters where Paul uses the phrase, the church of. If you were to go back and look at all of the other greetings, you go back to Ephesus, he refers to them as the church at. If you go back to Philippians, it's the church at Philippi. If you go back to any of the other books, Galatians is close, because he does say to the churches of Galatia. But the original language is not quite as clear as, as that, as it's more similar to the church at Galatia, but it doesn't flow easily in English. So Paul says here, this is the only time, this book and his follow-up book in 2 Thessalonians, the only time where Paul says to the church of. And he says to the church of the Thessalonians. The church of the Thessalonians was certainly a faithful assembly of believers, and Paul calls them that. Some have used this text to add to it the definition of church, meaning called out ones, and there is that definition too, but the word church was being used of any assembly. At the time of Paul, the the word church was being used of any assembly of people. So what Paul is saying is, to the assembly of the Thessalonians, this is a warm paternal statement a statement of a pastor to those who are ministering in a church, in a church body, concerned. Paul's concern is not so much with the outside world when he's writing to the Thessalonians. He's concerned about the potential for discouragement inside the church. Don't worry about the passing of your beloved saints. Psalms reminds us that it is precious in the sight of the Lord at the passing of His saints that He may be with them. 
We understand that truth, and so Paul is encouraging that to be lived out in a practical sense. And he's saying, what do we do as believers? We look with anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Every time a faithful follower of the Lord, and we've had three of them in the last two weeks, pass away, we ought to be those who renew our vigor towards the return of Christ. We look with great anticipation to that. But while we wait, we still have a job to do, a responsibility to perform. And Paul reminds the church who they are rooted in, and we've alluded to it, and now Paul gets direct as he says to the church of the Thessalonians, that is, of the believers who are in Thessalonica, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the marks of identity, may we have the same mark as the church of Thessalonica that we are in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible for us to have the name church and not be the church that is in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can drive up and down the streets of Byron Center and many other places and find such churches. So we use church somewhat flippantly, but Paul is not using that designation flippantly. He says you are the church of the Thessalonians, and you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Their identity is there. In our age, we see a rising effort to sanitize the name of churches to make them sound more palatable to secular society. Have you ever noticed that? Like, what does that even mean? What is, your, what is the name of your church? I'm confused. I'm confused because it doesn't mean anything. Yet, in a world where men wobble like jello. The Christian convictions of these believers had been newly acquired. So Paul is calling to these Thessalonican believers, and he's saying to them, I know that outside of you are men waffling like a bowl full of jelly. But your Christian convictions, albeit newly acquired, are to be held fast and firm. In a permissive society, permissive society, their Christian moral standards had just been brought to them. The nagging question, the struggle that Paul is going to address is when tough time comes, how are you going to handle it? The question that Paul is posing to the Thessalonians is the same question we need to ask the church today. In a world where men wobble like jello, where Christian convictions are easily and quickly thrown out the window, where Christian moral standards are rejected by society so fast we can't even keep up with the pace. When tough times come, how will we handle the crisis? That same question posed to Thessalonica is posed to us today, and Paul's answer is that we are to be rooted in God, living in God, and secure in God. That's why the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church was not identified for its complete identity as being the Thessalonians. They were identified as being the church of Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
may that be how we are known. The church of Byron Center in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our rooting, our foundation, our base, our security, our source is God. The vibrancy of the church at Thessalonica was not due to gimmicks. We saw that last week as well. It was not a gimmicky church. It was not devised out of some clever schemes of Paul to get a church to be built there in the shadows of Mount Olympus. Can you imagine the coup that that would have been, the the great celebration that that would have been for Paul to go back to Jerusalem and say, in the shadows of, of Mount Olympus, I planted a church. There are leaders today who would say it just like that. Paul doesn't. He humbly and gently diminishes his own status among the Thessalonians. He sends Timothy to continue to minister to to them when he and Silas have been removed. But we recognize that Paul, in writing just a few weeks later, says to the church, you are the church of Thessalonica, but you are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The message that Paul proclaimed to this church, and the reason that there are converts to begin with in Thessalonica was that Paul preached a simple gospel message. It was clear. Now the church was standing firm. It was not deviating to the deplorable morality that existed around them or theological erosion that existed in other places, even in the early church. And so Paul is celebrating their resistance to those degradations, to those deviations. And now Paul is celebrating with great joy the faithfulness of these believers. And he gives to them a double blessing in his greeting. And this is a common greeting. But let us not allow the commonality of this greeting to pass by without recognizing its importance. It is an important greeting. It's a double blessing. And we've studied this before, so I'm not going to spend a considerable amount of time here, but I do want to spend time and pause. This is a common but important Christian greeting. And these are lovely words to the Christian's ears. Grace and peace. Grace is God's multifaceted kindness in our life. It is something that comes to us when we do not deserve it and cannot repay it. Grace stoops to where we are and lifts us to where we ought to be. So just as we sang, holy, 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 a few moments moments ago, and Stephen reminded us of each one of the verses and the richness of the words of each one of those verses, Paul is doing the same thing by using the word grace. This is why I end my letters. If you were to receive an email from me, it is most often accompanied just before my name by signing off grace. Why? Because it points us to one of the most essential truths of the Christian life. You are where you are, not because you deserved it, but because God granted His grace to you. Beloved, let us not allow the commonality of this word to diminish upon our thinking its importance. Grace is God's multifaceted kindness in our life. You didn't deserve it. And it was used to pull you from you where you were to where you are and to where you ought to be. 
When we use the word grace, let us not use it flippantly. Let us use it with a clear understanding of the multifaceted kindness of God in our lives. We could spend just all day focusing on the marvelous grace of God to us. Just think of the way that God has expressed His kindness to you. Yesterday I was standing out at the ball field. We had a doubleheader and we were in the middle of a brutal game. We lost terribly. (laughs) It was a brutal game. And I began a conversation with our head coach, and he and I are coaching together. We've coached together for two years, and, and so he knows me, he knows what I do, and, and we've had many gospel conversations, and, and uh, I looked at him, we were talking, and we were talking about what happens after the season and so forth, and, and as we were talking, he talked about an injury. I, I said, thank you for your coaching and suffering through the injuries. Well, he was pitching one day way back in the spring, early spring, and we were inside, and he was pitching to the kids, and he rolled his ankle as he stepped off the mound. And it took six weeks off work. And he said, you know, the odd thing is that I needed those six weeks to work on my house. And I said, isn't the grace of God wonderful? And he said, what? I said, God's kindness to you. You wouldn't have made your deadline, but God expressed his kindness to you by his grace. Let us not use the word grace so flippantly that we forget its great joy to the Christian ear. Let us meditate on the multifaceted kindness of God in our life every time we hear or see the word grace. One author writes this, Peace is something within us, a freedom from inner distraction and eternal rest a feeling of well-being, spiritual wholeness. Peace is a tranquility of soul that frees us from fear and takes the sharp edges off our anxieties. Peace is that unruffled quietness that defies the crashing, crushing circumstances of life. And how critical it is, that was the end quote, but how critical it is that we find peace followed after grace. It's not peace and grace. That's the wrong order. That's the cart before the horse. It's grace and peace. God's multifaceted kindness to you, which gives to you inner peace. This is what the world is searching for. This is what every unbeliever in all of the world of all time has been craving, is this inner peace, and it's only found in a relationship with their Savior God. They're going to find all kinds of things to try to soothe it. But Paul says to the Christian, grace and peace. You have the freedom from inner distractions if you know Christ as Savior. There's no need for the turmoil that wells up internally when the peace of God is your peace. And the only time that the peace of God can be your peace is if you know Christ as Savior. It is then possible for us to stifle the peace of God and to be wrapped up and consumed in the affairs of the world. But Paul, writing to this church, whose anxiety level is increasing because they see one another dying, writes to them in his introduction, grace and peace. Grace and peace. We have to work at peace. Grace is given to us. Paul says, think of the multifaceted goodness of God in your life and then dwelling upon that 
participate in the peace that is only the believer's peace, the rest that is only true for believers. Rest there. We go on as we end the greeting. He says this in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We are preparing to enter into the main body of the letter. But as we do, we pause for one more moment to consider Paul's pastoral care and pastoral provision for this church as he demonstrates it in his own life, and it reminds us of the team that Paul started with in verse 1. And so Paul is giving thanks how important it is for you and I to be those who fall constantly on our knees to give thanks to God for what he has done for us. Hopefully this is your practice already. If not, start it. And if it is your practice already or you have not yet started it, look to Paul's example to how to do it better, how to praise better, how to give thanks better. And the first is always be thankful with praise. Paul was a man of praise. In fact, we see that back in Acts chapter 16 where Paul is in jail and he's praising God while not just in jail. We studied this in the book of Philippians. Paul was not just in prison, he was chained. And the idea of being chained in prison when uh, he was in Philippi was that he was not just locked to the wall, but he was actually being stretched to the wall. Pulled apart. And he's singing in the middle of the night when the earthquake takes place. Paul was a man of praise no matter the circumstances. He preached it, he practiced it. He didn't just stand in front of the Philippians or the Thessalonians and just say, uh, by the way, you should give thanks. And then he walked out of the back of the synagogue and left, never giving thanks. Paul was a man who praised the Lord. In all circumstances, he was a man of praise. It was central to his prayers, and it was central to his daily living. Praise, listen carefully. Because this is not some uh, magic pill that you take and suddenly everything's better. Praise did not change the circumstances that Paul was in most of the time. Most of the time, Paul's praise had nothing to do at all with his circumstances or trying to influence or affect the outcome of those circumstances. But it did change something. It changed his attitude. Praise changes your attitude. Paul is not willing to grumble or to complain or to bicker with others about his circumstances. He will praise God faithfully and obediently in all circumstances. Say, but pastor, you don't understand what I'm going through. I have this significant financial crisis or this significant health crisis or this significant family issue or I have uh, several in my family who have passed away in this period of time and so we're torn apart and we're confused and we're conflicted. Or I have good things going on. Pastor, you don't understand. I don't have time for praise because I just got to keep riding this train. Wherever it is, whatever the circumstances is, whether, whatever the circumstances are, whether it's good or bad, it does not matter. Be one who falls on your knees and prays to our great God because it will change your attitude. How could Paul start out humbly by writing Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy? Because he was humbled. Because he was a man of praise. 
How could he call in the Philippian jailer and say, don't kill yourself. Let me tell you about what God has done. It wasn't that his praise changed the circumstances, but it changed his heart. Let us be those who are genuine praise givers. Paul not only genuinely praises the Lord, but he also genuinely gives thanks for the believers. He's specific in his prayers. He's specific in his praise. Praise God for you who are in Thessalonica. We should also give people reason to be thankful for the Lord. How many times have you grumbled to somebody else and you know that your grumbling has hindered their ability to praise, to pray? And we often do it in a spiritual sense. I need you to pray for me. Paul says, I praise the Lord for you. Do you give reason? When you come in among our fellowship, you see one another in the streets of Byron Center or Granville or Jenison or Wyoming or Grand Rapids, wherever you encounter, are you leaving each other with a reason to praise the Lord for one another? What a practical opportunity for you to engage in. To, when you encounter another believer, you leave them reason for praising the Lord. The Thessalonians had done that for Paul. Even there was, Paul is not blind. He knows there's challenges in, in the church of Thessal, Thessalonia or Thessalonica. But he's praising the Lord for them. There's a personal touch to this praise. It strikes a similar rich vein when he writes the letters to other churches, such as the Romans, the Ephesians, and the Colossians, especially those. There's a personal touch to his praise. Paul praises the Lord for the time he spent in and among the believers of Thessalonica. And then he prays. He prays. Paul's praise is almost always accompanied by prayer. But notice also that Paul is not praying alone. Did you catch that? Verse 2, we give thanks to God. Towards the end of verse 2, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The reason that Paul includes the plurality here is because he's talking about Silas and Timothy. Can you imagine when Timothy brought back the report to Paul of all that he had seen and all that he had witnessed and participated in in Thessalonica, he returns to Paul who's now in Corinth and he lays out his report. Can you imagine the prayer meeting that broke out in that moment where Paul falls to his knees and he praises the Lord for the faith and practice of the Thessalonian believers and he prays for the challenges that they will face and endure Paul not only had those who were co-laborers with him in the furtherance of the gospel and in discipleship, but he had co-laborers who prayed with him. Paul's team prayed and praised. To many Christians, prayer is about as exciting as changing a flat tire. To Paul, to his ministry colleagues, time spent in prayer was never seen as wasted time. It is astoundingly profitable. And it paid handsome dividends for all who are recipients of the blessings of Paul's prayers and for Paul himself. 
Paul's greetings to the church of the Thessalonians reminds us of our own roots. May we be those who are faithful, constant prayer warriors, giving praise, leaving reason for other believers to praise. May we also be those who are known as the church of Byron Center in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Rooted, grounded, found in Christ. Found as God's church. Not wavering or wafting. Not acting like jello. But standing firm. Even in days where we grieve. Paul's greetings to the church of the Thessalonians reminds us of our roots. It points us to praise and it directs us to the joy of praying for others. And with that, let us ask the Lord's blessing as we close. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we desire to be like the example we see in Paul's life and testimony. Allow us to be those who are quick to give praise and are quick to pray. May we be like those as well that will follow the practice of being the church in Byron Center or of Byron Center, but being in you in every way. May we find our sufficiency, our security in you alone. And may we also find our supply in you alone. Lord, we pray that you would find us faithful and teach us how to emulate some of what we have studied in the greeting of Paul today. We look forward to getting into the book of 1 Thessalonians together, but we look far more forward to the second coming of Christ. And so it is, as often is our prayer, it is our prayer this morning that Christ would come quickly to take the church to be with him in the air. We long for those days. But while we are longing for those days, allow us to be those who encourage and strengthen one another as we see that day approaching. That your name would be glorified, exalted in our midst, and truly be who we are in following you. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.